Welcome to Cloud Radio, made for full-stack cloud operators. Cloud Radio covers all aspects of the business of software. Welcome to Cloud Radio. We're happy to have Scott Stouffer on. He is the founder and CEO of Scale Matters. And the reason we invited him on was for two reasons. One, he's got a great track record. He's been the CEO of a public company. He was last CEO of Salsa Labs, which was sold to a private equity firm named Excel KKR. And from there, he started Scale Matters. And the other aspect of scale that was important to us in thinking through guests was the fact that they have great visibility into pipelines and funnels across the SaaS industry. So it's more than a sample size of one. We can speak to various parts of leakage, trends, best practices, and making those insights from real data. So we're pleased to have Scott on. Hope you enjoyed the show. So Scott, how about you give us a background on your career and and also what scale does? Sure. Well, my, as you can tell, my career has been long, so we won't go into too much detail on that. But basically, I've been serial tech entrepreneur for the last 30 years. This is my fifth company that I either started or was the CEO of. And my background, uh, electrical engineering, undergraduate degree, MBA, spent the first couple years of my career in the semiconductor industry before moving into networking and telecom, mostly grew up prior to starting my first company in product management uh, mm-hmm. as, as a function, although I'd spent some time in sales and, uh, and also marketing. So that's sort of the background. It kind of provided me some foundation when I started uh, playing the entrepreneur role. Started my first business in 1993, uh, okay. I, I guess. So, so uh, yeah, just about 30 years ago. And as I said, this is the fifth one. Uh, we've had uh, some very good success, which was the first one. Took it public, uh, ran that as a public company for quite some time. We've had uh, one complete failure, which was three years of hard work and got nothing out of it. And we've had everything in between as well. In terms of Scale Matters, we are a company that provides a um, software platform. Uh, we refer to it as a go-to-market optimization platform, but the purpose it serves is to help other tech companies become very efficient at acquiring revenue themselves. So think of it as a sort of purpose-built BI for mm-hmm. the sales and marketing and revenue leaders of B2B tech companies uh, and predominantly uh, early and growth stage companies. So our customers range from two to three million in annual sales up to a few hundred million in annual sales. So hopefully that's helpful. That's background. And who is your ideal customer? Is it CRO, CMO? Yes. So the ideal customer in terms of the company is probably kind of 10 million to a couple hundred million in revenue. They're B2B. They probably have quite a number of different channels or strategies that they're using to source new business themselves. So paid search, uh, SEO, maybe events, outbound prospecting, you know, maybe G2 referral services, something like that. You know, on the smaller end, they would probably have a um, velocity motion meaning that they're selling to SMBs or Mm mid-market companies. Our larger customers tend to have an enterprise motion, which is a little bit more complex and drawn out. In terms of the persona or the actual champion uh, for our stuff within these organizations, yeah, probably first is CRO. And, And when I say CRO, I'm talking about person that owns both sales and marketing. Uh, mm-hmm. not, not necessarily simply sales, right? Yep. 
VP of Revenue Operations. I mean, usually the CRO is the beneficiary of what we do. The head of revenue operations is the one who basically owns, you know, owns the relationship and, and that sort of thing. And then, you know, heads of sales, heads of marketing and, and uh, CFOs often as well. Okay. And before we get into some like deeper topical issues, sometimes some of the actionable, let's just say you're new CMO, CRO, RevOps, inherit bad data and a bad pipeline system, what would you tell them to do? Well, the very first thing I would tell them to do is create a data dictionary. Uh, so, so, so basically start by saying, okay, what is our data model currently look like? And by data model, um, I mean, um, let, let's say they're using Salesforce, right? Mm-hmm. What are all these various fields that we have on each on the opportunity object on the lead object what do they mean and make and i so the first thing i would do is make sure i have clarity about what exists today uh, in terms of the data and that other people in the organization agree with kind of that audit right that they say yep yep that's what we believe is in there etc then I would go through a process of trying to understand when you say inherit bad data, often the reason they inherit bad data is because there's poor hygiene, Mm -hmm. poor poor, um, practices in terms of, you know, you might have 10 different salespeople and they all interact with the CRM differently, right? So that, that in and of itself completely undermines the integrity of the data. So I would start to do sort of an assessment of the hygiene and understand where you know data is valid and where it isn't so you have to start by understanding what you're working with and that's what i would do first and and then you can decide okay i mean generally the way i would think about this is what are the types of questions i'm going to need to be able to answer to do a very good job right Mm -hmm. given those questions what kind of information do i need to you know inform me so i can actually make good answers so you start developing almost a requirements of data or measurements that you're going to need to support your decision making and then you can see where the gap is between what you've currently got and and what you ultimately would need to have you know a little bit more of a precise tool to help you and given the switch kind of in the environment, are you seeing people like reforecast their stages or like edit their models right now? Or should they be sticking to kind of doubling down on what they have? I don't think it matters. I think like like when you say a shift in the environment, I, I assume you mean sort of the greater focus around efficiency and, and that sort of thing. I don't think the definition of stages you know, what it actually is matters that much. What matters is, does everyone understand it? And are people complying with it, right? So, so for example, I mean, a classic thing is, you know, salespeople sort of hold back their opportunities. They keep them earlier in the pipeline, right? Because as soon as they get later in pipeline, they start getting a little bit more scrutiny from above. Yep. And, you know, so while I understand that, it's not helpful. It's not helpful to the company, right? So I think it's less about rejiggering the model and more about, you know, instilling discipline and compliance to the way company ought to operate so that the integrity of their data is actually good. For sure. That's really helpful. And I've seen on your you know, LinkedIn feed, it's some really interesting commentary on, on quotas. And personally, I've been observing 
on the data side, quota attainment, you can look at rep view, and the trend is very much downward. And I'd be interesting to have you elaborate on like what quota means in 2023, and if people are doing anything wrong with quota. Well, I mean, certainly I don't claim to to be all-knowing, so I can't say what people are doing right or wrong. I, I can give you my personal opinion about the, okay. val- about the value of quotas, which I think is very limited, not my opinion, but the value. And why I say that, quotas are, are effectively an arbitrary number that leadership teams set. And if you think about why does a quota exist, simply to say, uh, well, beneath this salesperson, you make this amount, you get above it, you get accelerated right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, but what a salesperson is actually capable of selling in terms of the volume of sales that a salesperson is capable of selling has absolutely nothing to do with their quota. Here's what it has to do with. If it's a velocity motion, right, the the company sells to SMBs or mid-market companies, probably the vast majority of the top of funnel, when I say top of funnel, I mean the lead flow, Mm -hmm. is generated by marketing investments as opposed to salespeople going out knocking on doors, right? So the first thing you have to understand is, you know, kind of from a conversion rate perspective, how many leads does it take to generate a first meeting, right? How many first meetings does it take to generate an opportunity? How many opportunities stage one to go to two, et cetera. So you have to have a very good understanding of the top to bottom funnel leakage, if you will, which is completely independent of of salespeople. I mean, it it will vary. The bottom of funnel stuff will vary depending on the salesperson's skills. But but generally speaking, the model for a company is, you know, from from lead to deal, you know, we convert 1.2%, whatever it is. And by doing that, you can back into how many stage one opportunities a salesperson would have to have to deliver a certain, you know, to deliver a deal, how many stage two. And you do have a reasonable understanding, you should as a sales manager have a reasonable understanding of how much time do we invest at this stage for any given customer, right? So you can start to actually use activity and time to figure out okay, given that we'll, we'll need 16 stage one opportunities to generate a deal and we spend about 45 minutes uh, in stage one for each prospect, right? So we'll need 16 times 45 minutes for that. We need X number of stage two and we spend an hour in that. So you can start to f- pretty quickly figure out how much time is invested by a salesperson to ultimately generate one deal, right? So you, let's say at 50 hours. Yep to generate a deal. And then you know that, well, we, we start, if everyone worked 52, you know, 52 weeks, 40 hours a week, you have 20, 80 hours. Reality is most people between holidays and vacation, it's maybe 47 weeks. So you're down to 1900 hours or whatever it is. There's some efficiency taxes like time spent in meetings, right? And other stuff. Yep. So, so you can basically say, what is the starting capacity in terms of the number of hours that a salesperson really has available to sell, divide that number by that 50, and it says that's how many deals a salesperson has the physical capacity to do. Yep. Right? That's what should drive. Now, you might set, you know, your average deal size, and you you could just say, okay, well, it's that number times average deal size. You might set quotas a little bit higher, but it should be driven by what is physically the capability or capacity of a salesperson to to generate. And I think what happens, well, first of all, 
the vast majority of growth stage companies tend to have too many salespeople. So this is part of the reason that the, the quota attainment is what you just described, right? Yeah. Because there's sort of this old school mentality that number of salespeople drives the amount of revenue, but it doesn't. It doesn't. What drives the revenue is top of funnel. And then you, you have to have enough salespeople to basically fulfill the opportunities generated by the top of funnel. And so, but people still operate on this old school mentality that sales headcount is what drives revenue, which it rarely does. The only time it does is in motions where the salespeople are the primary source of top of funnel, meaning the salespeople are out prospecting, building their own pipeline, right? In those scenarios, you say, okay, there's a relationship between revenue and sales headcount. Everything else, there's not. And so being a little long-winded, so I'll try to bring this to an end. But so my whole point with quotas is it's simply a way of managing compensation and ultimately managing cost of acquisition because ideally if you're not achieving the level of sales that you would like to you want to make sure you're not you know paying too much money for that right and of course if you're overachieving the fact that you can pay a higher amount to the salespeople, it's still a relatively low marginal cost of acquisition so again since quotas are arbitrarily set, they don't really mean anything. And you asked about the people that, you know, why it's declining. It's really for two reasons. One, there's too many salespeople. Two, too many companies believe they can increase growth by raising quotas. And again, since it's like you're over-engineering an arbitrary number that you made up to begin with. So that's my thoughts on And I guess that ties into another take I saw on your LinkedIn about people focusing too much on late stage pipeline. So when I talk about that, I mean specifically that the later you look in the overall lead to deal process, the more restricted your toolkit is to do anything about it. So for example, because I mean, it is important to look at deals, right? Or opportunities and deals and manage closely. I mean, this is what sales management is supposed to do, particularly frontline sales management. But, you know, by the time you're really focused on stuff that is in maybe the last two stages of pipeline, you know, if it appears that you're going to be 30% short on the month, I mean, what can you do about it? Nothing. You know, you potentially can throw some additional discounts or, or, or something, right? But you've got a very limited tool set that you can react with to try to kind of recover the month or the quarter or whatever if you focus predominantly on the very back end of the pipeline funnel. If, on the other hand, you understand, let's say, demo requests, right? People filling out demo requests on a website is the predominant way that leads come in. If you know that you know, on average from the time a demo request comes in to the time you get a deal is 120 days and you're focused instead on whether the, you know, you really put your energies on are the demo requests where we need them to be. Well, then you've got time to actually react. Spending too much energy at looking at bottom of funnel, at late stage yeah. stuff in the pipeline. Yeah. And, and so the, the point really is if you're thinking about it from a managerial perspective, leadership perspective, you want to have time to make adjustments. 
and and it's usually too late. There's not enough time if that's where you focus most of your energy. And, and you, you kind of look at all these people that talk about forecasting and, you know, these use Clary and all these other tools. It, it's all kind of late stage pipeline stuff. And, and so while it may inform you that you're not going to be where you want to be, it's doing it so late in the process that you can't react. And so that's why we are big advocates for kind of full funnel analytics, put a lot of energy understanding and evaluating the dynamics of, of what's happening at the very top of the funnel, because that's where you both, you know, you have more time and therefore you have more tools at your disposal to adjust. So that that's basically the point that I was have made previously there. Great, great. That was really good. Your experience, like where are areas of waste at the top of the funnel? Probably the most significant area of waste at top of funnel is marketing programs bringing in, attracting non-ICP prospects. And, and mostly because the messaging's not dialed in. Yep. Right? I, I mean, if you think about it, in my view, messaging is kind of like fundamental job one of marketing. And yet over the last X number of years with all these kind of digital marketing tools, et cetera, people have gotten just very focused on, you know, data. They're in the data, they're in the data, but they aren't in the data around messaging. And so, I mean, we've seen so many customers of ours, you know, they're doing paid search or paid LinkedIn advertising. And if, if you actually get in the data to understand who are these people that are being attracted, you know, it's not uncommon for the majority of them to be very bad fit prospects. So, so not only are you wasting the money on the ads, but then you're wasting money on salespeople's time to actually try to sell to these bad fit you know, non-ICP prospects. That, that to me is, is, is where the biggest waste on top of funnel stuff is. Basically me messaging friction. And kind of percentage terms of like potential ad waste, uh, kind of a typical person who signs up with you guys. You know, they, they could be wasting 80% of their ad budget. We had one customer, have one customer, that their PE firm suggested that they dramatically increase their ad spend. This is pretty, pretty big customers. They were spending about half a million a quarter and they jacked it up to two million a quarter on paid search. And, you know, they did see the leads go up, but platform that we provide, they were able to actually see as soon as they increased their spend, they saw a dramatic increase in web sessions driven from paid search, which is what you would expect to see, right? More people coming to the website. But as soon as the session count went up, the conversion rate from the website to demo requests went down. Shortly thereafter, and I mean like within a week, the conversion rate from demo requests to opportunities went down. And, you know, a few weeks later, we saw a precipitous drop in the uh, overall opt-to-deal win rate. So basically what that showed was that this entire strategy of, of, you know, dramatically increasing spend, it was all wasted because all they were doing was bringing in people that couldn't convert. And, you know, it's, it's sometimes like, depending on which metric you were looking at, if, if the uh, website conversion rate metric had stayed the same, then it would have been an issue that they were just generating too many leads and didn't have enough salespeople to process them, which again is wasting money, right? I mean, why, yep. why get the leads if they're just going to die on the vine? But since all three of these conversion rates almost in tandem, you know, fell substantially, it was 
completely obvious that at least in the way they were executing this approach to increase spend, it was a complete waste of money. You know, and in that case, we're talking about a million and a half a quarter that they had jacked it up that was completely wasted. That's pretty meaningful and particularly oh, yeah. in like B2B just trying to deploy that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have not seen any actual studies on this, but we talk to a lot of people in the investor community, both VC and private equity. Anecdotally, you know, particularly in kind of sub $50 million companies, you know, they will tell you close to 50%, certainly 30 to 50%, if not higher, of sales and marketing spend in these growth stage B2B companies is completely non-productive. Right. So just wasted. And, and if you think about how much of their investment capital they're putting in sales and marketing, because it's usually the, the biggest pot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there's just enormous inefficiencies. And, and, and that's, you know, the good news is if you can become good at it, and of course, this is what my company, Scale Matters, helps these companies with. But is it is low hanging fruit. It's it's pretty easy to get rid of the waste once you understand where it is. But it it's for like. That 30, 50% on productive, I have to imagine the payback for a tool like yours is very, very quick. It is, particularly on, uh, let, let's, take a, uh, let's take a $50 million business, right? They are probably spending 15 to $20 million on sales and marketing each year. Yep. If, if you say 30% of that's wasted, then you're talking about four and a half to six million dollars complete non-productive spend right if, if we can uh help them find half of that you know then you're looking at two and a quarter to three million dollars of savings and you know a 50 million dollar company they're probably paying uh, i don't know sixty thousand bucks a year for our platform so so yeah i mean it's an enor- enormous payback but but companies have to do the work right i mean it it, it takes a lot of work even with help from a company like ours, it takes a lot of work to get your data to the point that it actually does a good job surfacing where this waste is happening, right? Because that's part of, that's one of the biggest reasons there's so much waste right now is because most companies don't have very good visibility into, you know, what spend is productive and what spend is not productive. And that therefore you become nervous about just stopping things because you don't know whether that was actually the muscle that you're cutting right instead of the fat and is that like a function of like lack of talent or even like lack of staffing of an analyst who will just sit there and sort through this or silos like how how does that problem persist it's a combination so let's take sales for example people that grow up in their career is in sales historically they are not necessarily people with particularly analytical mindsets, right? So, so they don't necessarily have the skill sets to think about data and evaluate data and that sort of thing. Marketing people, particularly this, you know, uh, current generation marketing leaders tend to be pretty data savvy. But then there's kind of the whole issue of how do you generate this data, right? Where's the instrumentation that produces this data? And that is the tech stacks, right? It's in the CRM, it's in the marketing automation platform, it's in the outreach cadence tool or whatever it is. And this is where there tends to be a gap. If you think about how most of these companies get started, the first salesperson is the one who often implements the CRM. The first marketing person implements the marketing automation platform. And 
I mean, these people are not RevOps people, right? They, they are not skilled technologists. And, and this, this technology that we're talking about, whether it's, you know, recording tools like Gong and Chorus, et cetera, or Cadence tools like SalesLoft, Outreach, Groove, CRMs like Salesforce, marketing automation platforms like Marketo and HubSpot. This stuff is sophisticated technology. Yeah. And, and to put it together properly requires very skilled people. It's no different than any other kind of IT, right? But here we are, like most of these companies with salespeople and marketing people playing IT people. So these tech stacks are always put together terror. And so you have, you know, data that's not syncing with each other. So there's, uh, it's stuck in silos. It's contradictory. You've probably heard about the very common practice where sales leaders say, we're not getting enough leads. Marketing leaders say, well, we gave you all these leads. And it's because they aren't, what they call leads are two completely different things, right? And they're looking at in different databases for their metrics. So the issue is that these companies generally wait too long to invest in the technical talent to set up the infrastructure properly so that it actually is very well instrumented. And as a result, you just have a bunch of garbage data that's not particularly useful in most of these um, environments, certainly kind of sub $25 million companies, you you run into that. So so the first issue is you, you need the skills to properly set up the tech stack to get the instrumentation. The second point, which is where you went, which is absolutely critical too, is somebody has to put eyes on it, right? I mean, you you could have the greatest um, resolution MRI image in the world and put it in front of me and I'm not gonna know what I'm looking at, right? But you need, but you put it in front of a radiologist and they would. So you still, even with the awesome tools that are out there, somebody has to put eyes on it and be able to sort of curate what's important here, what's actionable, what should we do about it? And that is the role in larger companies for sure that a dedicated business analyst would play that's in maybe the go-to-market function, often maybe under the RevOps team, right? Data analysis group. In early and growth stage companies, they don't usually have that person. So that's the problem, right? You, you don't have the instrumentation set up properly, so you're not creating data. And then even if you did, you don't usually have anyone on your staff that either has the time or in many cases, the skill set to actually analyze it and turn it into something action. And for like the listener out there, like, are there any like guideposts? Like when you're at 5 million of ARR, you should hire this type of talent or install this type of technical talent, 10 million, 20 million, just some. I mean, I don't know that there are. My own opinion, as I said, is companies wait too long. You don't need it from day one. Because right? yep. if you think about day one, it's the founder tapping into their network, trying to kind of, hey, here's what we're trying to do. Does this make sense? Would you be interested? Right. And you're trying in the first year or so to, you know, get five or 10 customers. You can manage all that by hand. Right. So, so it's kind of at the point that you've sort of proven that people will buy your stuff. And now maybe you're going to go raise money. And, and this is often kind of at the same point that a company would raise a Series A investment mm-hmm. is, okay, we've proven we can sell this thing. At least the founder can. We've talked to the customers that have bought it. They seem to be getting great value out of it. So it looks like we've got something that has product market fit. Now let's raise some money to actually invest in building some kind of repeatable approach to go to market, right? At that point... I would say is when you need to 
bring in professional RevOps, whether it's in-house, you, you may not have enough going on to justify full-time. So in that case, you know, there are plenty of options out there in terms of service providers. But you want to make sure that you set up from the beginning, kind of, here's our sales playbook, here's our marketing playbook, and here's our supporting infrastructure playbook and how it's going to help enable that, right? And too often, as I said, the technology part of it is an afterthought until companies actually find that it's holding them back because they've done it so poorly. You know, it's holding them back and then now they've got to do an entire kind of rebuild and clean up and all that kind of stuff. So again, I'm not really answering your question in terms of what do you do at 20 million, 30 million, but I, I do think that an, an important milestone is at the point you raise a series A, cause you're going to start building out a repeatable approach. You need to invest in making sure you have the infrastructure and plumbing to support it. Yeah. And that makes perfect, like at all stages with the sheer dollars you're spending on sales and marketing, right? It, yeah. The calculus would work once you're above some basic level of funnel and revenue right? yeah yeah for sure okay that, that that's very helpful though i think like the takeaway being people invest in rev ops too late oh yeah i don't think you'll find anybody that disagrees with that there may be some people that go never even thought about it right but anybody that actually is in or around the rev ops world absolutely believes that companies wait too long and, and then it, they have to go through this, uh, you know, this whole recovery process to clean everything up. And that's very painful. Yeah, that was my experience in SaaS private equity, like came from a true corporate private equity background. So your natural inclination would be like all forms of overhead are bad. Mm -hmm. um, but when we got involved with one of our portfolio companies, like we saw like just how much burden was actually like held by our salespeople and how little support they had and we kind of invested in one rev ops person and it made a massive difference and we were able to install tools and yeah do it, things it does, it, it does make a difference for exactly and, and yeah it feels like overhead but and if you only have one salesperson, it probably is right but you start getting the three or four salespeople, and you try and uh, you know and you're starting to invest a fair amount in marketing programs i mean you really need to put this stuff in place to to make sure that you're efficient with this that spend and then not sure if you'd want to comment on any of this but i imagine you know with your client base and the nature of your tool you have a lot of visibility into trends, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are there anything you're seeing in kind of 2023 in terms of sectors or motions that are strong or weak that would be kind of interesting for an overall SaaS audience to hear about? Yeah. So what, what I will say is that the companies that seem to be doing fine fall into two camps as I can think about it. One is they're selling to major enterprise, you know, traditional large enterprise that are largely unaffected by any of the stuff going on in the tech world today. Mm -hmm. Two companies that are unaffected are selling into situations where it's a compliance play. So there are regulatory things that force their customers to have to buy stuff, right? Yep. Outside of that, and particularly with companies like ours that are selling to tech companies, it's a very tough climate. Yeah. Uh, we are seeing, you know, companies that had been, you know, growing substantially, actually really struggling to bring in new customers. We are seeing sales cycles quite a bit prolonged, 
right? Because, I mean, certainly, you know, some companies have gone to a cost-neutral position on software, which is, you know, if we're buying something, we have to get rid of something else, right? So all of that adds to the sales cycle. Or, you know, now there's a whole nother layer of approval in today's environment because, you know, again, trying to clamp down on spend. So all of the, the, the predominant thing we're seeing is an effect on sales cycle. And will you say the top of the funnel is okay, up, down? It's down. Uh, right, because I mean, a number of people know they can't buy anything, so why spend your time <laughs> Googling to, to find something, right? Yeah, that's interesting. Is We keep, as part of our research practice, kind of use some high-intent search data as a proxy for the funnel. It's very rough. Yeah. And it's been pretty stable, Yeah, which is interesting. And, you know, I've looked at that as, okay, this has to be a sales cycle issue, but your point makes perfect sense. Like if you're not going to implement HubSpot, why would you Google HubSpot pricing? It's, yeah. Now, now I, I would absolutely say we're seeing more impact in the bottom of the funnel okay. than we are at the top of funnel. But it, there is some impact at top of funnel for sure. And I guess this is kind of a trick question. In 2023, would you rather be a VP of sales or a chief marketing officer? Well, in 2023, I would rather be a VP of sales. Uh, uh, and again, the reason I answer that is because in this climate, you know, companies are watching spend. Companies are decreasing spend. The first thing that companies decrease spend on is tools. The second thing is marketing programs, right? Because companies try desperately not to remove headcount, right? Headcount is always the last thing uh, where, you, where you start tightening the belt. So if I'm the head of marketing, I think an awful lot of what I'm doing, particularly since I've you know been battered enough over 20 years as a CMO to know that nobody believes any of our marketing programs do anything for, for us, <laughs> that it's generally viewed as discretionary spend. Right. And, and, you know, people have little tolerance for arguments about brand and stuff like that when it when it's time to, you know, tighten spend. That, that makes perfect sense. So I noticed you have like an ROI calculator on your site. And I guess two part question, like kind of could you walk us through kind of what the ROI of Scale Matters is? And then part B that I'm also interested in is like, how does like a quantified ROI message kind of resonate with your specific audience, like CROs or CMOs? Yeah, first of all, and, and uh, you know, I'm almost ashamed to say this, but I haven't looked at our website uh, recently, at least at the calculator, but I think specifically what that calculator is, is to help companies understand the impact that wasted spend has on their valuations and on their growth, right? So it, it's meant to make it more vividly apparent how unacceptable this notion of wasting 20 or 30 or 40 percent of your sales and marketing spend is. So it has nothing to do with scale matters per se. It, it's more the relationship between uh, non-productive spend and valuations for companies. In terms of the ROI for scale matters, we've talked briefly about this before, but we're basically helping customers identify friction, things that aren't working well. Some of those friction points 
manifest as wasted spend, right? You're um, spending a bunch of ad money bringing in people that you'll never be able to sell to because they're not good fit, right? Some of those friction points are not wasted spend as much as they cause revenue leakage. You're not doing discovery on your first meetings in a optimal fashion to generate sense of urgency, right? And we're looking for all these different friction, but ultimately the end result is as you start eliminating these friction points that our platform exposes, is you start getting more revenue for less investment. And, you know, we often focus on the wasted spend because that's really easy to do, right? So, again, $50 million companies probably spending 15 to $20 million on sales and marketing. If 30% of that is completely non-productive, then you're talking about, you know, four and a half to $6 million of wasted spend. We feel pretty confident we'll help surface at least half of that. And then if you take steps to remove that, once you see where it is, you, you know, you're going to end up saving uh, with a couple million dollars, $3 million a year that you otherwise were just throwing now, if we did the ROI on that, two to $3 million a year savings, and uh, I don't know, $50 million company, they're maybe spending 60 grand on us, I don't know, something like that. You know, it's huge. Companies won't necessarily, though, take the savings. If they, really what we're trying to do with most companies is help them find the waste and redeploy it to things that actually can accelerate their growth, right? So in that case, it becomes a, a revenue return relative to the investment they make. In either case, it tends to be, you know, outsized uh, return, assuming that they take steps to ameliorate the things that we identify, right? Yeah, that's interesting too. I, I can see from like a value creation perspective that reinvestment actually mm -hmm. like really even multiplies an already high ROI gets redeployed and valuation considerations yeah, and yeah, the like. Exactly. And again, the problem, the challenge with that is generally speaking in these size companies, sub hundred million, the only people that really think that way are the CEO and CFO. Right. The revenue leaders aren't necessarily thinking about valuation multiples and multiple expansion because we're actually driving faster growth and stuff like that. They're think I mean, the head of sales is thinking, what do I got to do to get my number? So, so they're less, even though economically, the valuation multiple thing is by far the most compelling ROI. The people we're usually selling to actually don't care about that. I mean, they, they say they care, but they, that's not what they're staying up at night thinking about, right? They're staying up at night thinking, I need to keep my job to keep my job. I need, I need to make my number. Yeah, KPI, KPI, KPI any kind of yeah. sight of like what you ultimately, you know, kind of make money on over your time at that company is, right. is the equity. Well, that's it. And one last one, because I can only imagine, you know, a company like yours you probably get a lot of inbound investor inquiries, like young private equity associates, VPs, partners, like trying to reach out and do some investment prospecting. Mm -hmm. like what advice would you have, you know, kind of as a successful founder, like what resonates with you? What frustrates you when you hear from investors trying to source deal flow? Well, we're kind of in a unique position because I take every one of those things now because we actually use investors as our primary channel to get customers. So even though I know, like a private equity firm, right, we're still a seed stage company. 
and they were not even close to, you know, within their criteria. So I know that, but I still respond and I say, we're way too early for you, but you should talk to us anyway because we are working with other firms like yours to help their portfolio companies get better, right? So, so it, in our current situation, you can be completely off point and I'm still going to respond to you because I'm going to try to leverage it into a channel situation for us. Yeah. But put that aside, it is surprising to me how many firms reach out that we're not even close to a good fit for. Yeah. Because we're so early stage relative to where they, they invest, right? And, uh, I mean, if you, you look on LinkedIn, I don't know, what do we have, 15 employees or something like that? Yeah. Or with our With our international folks, maybe 20. I mean, we're not a 10, 20, $30 million business. It should be obvious by anything you can see, right? So I, it is a little, well, it's just inefficient, right? Talk about yeah. inefficiency on their business development. You know, they're not doing a very good job targeting. That doesn't offend me. It's just, it's kind of like, if I wasn't in our company, I'm not going to respond to you because I know it's not a good fit, right? The other one is, uh, I mean, obviously the vast majority of the people that are doing that are the people that have been at the company for six months and they just graduated from business school, right? Yeah. So, so, so I know that they know nothing. Yeah. And, you know, so they give us a little bit of gratuitous pandering about how excited they are about our business and all this stuff. I'm like, no, you're not. <laughs> you can't be because you don't even understand it, right? Yeah. And, again, we've had our own SDRs that have to do this. I, I'm respectful of how crappy that job is, right? So I, I don't get irritated at anybody. But, you know, I also know that the vast majority of these people, they're just sort of building the database for the company. And I don't really feel inclined to spend my time just to help this PE firm or growth stage VC firm build their database. You know, so if I were in a mode where I were trying to raise money or, or thought we were going to need to raise money, I would probably only respond to outreach by a partner. Or yep. if a PE firm, maybe a vice president, right? So somebody yeah. that I know has some juice to actually push something through, right? And I think so many um, first-time entrepreneurs who are getting this outreach as well, they have no idea. that They aren't interested in funding your company. They're interested in building their database, you know? So don't, don't waste so much time on it. That's good advice. And it's good perspective, too, for people to hear. Just for everyone who's enjoyed this, like, could you give me one last pitch on Scale Matters? Like, what do you do? Who are your customer types? How do they find you? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for asking. So uh, our customers are early and growth stage B2B tech companies. So 3 million revenue to 300 million revenue. What we specifically do, we are a purpose-built data analytics platform for go-to-market leaders. And what we're helping them do, we're, we're giving them precise visibility into what's working, what's not, the why behind it across their entire go-to-market motion from lead to deal, full funnel analytics. And the outcome that our customers are achieving is by having this visibility, particularly into the friction, right? One of the things we've sort of recognized is the way to become more efficient is to eliminate 
the inefficiencies. And so our platform is extraordinary at surfacing friction and inefficiencies. Our customers then have that insight and they go remove those friction points and they end up dramatically improving their, their CAC payback, their SAS magic number, whatever KPI they focus on from an efficiency perspective. We, I, I would say, reliably are helping these companies, you know, get 20% improvements or more within 12 months. And we've had some outliers that have, you know, seen like a 70% reduction in CAC. How do you get a hold of us? Uh, you can certainly go to scalematters.com or you can reach me, Scott Stauffer, my name. Email is scott at scalematters.com. And I generally look at every first line in every email. So uh, be efficient and I will respond. Even if you're a private equity associate? Yeah, I'll look at it to, to, okay, just, to decide whether I want to open it or not. Okay, that's good. Well, it sounds like you've got a good product. Really appreciate all the time and insights here. I think this has been a great episode. Sure, Matt. Thanks for having me and uh, good luck the rest of the way. All right. Thanks, Scott.